Good morning. It's good to see you here. As Chip said, we just had the, uh, the first service at St. John's. It was, you know, a packed service, a really, really great time. I just want to thank Tate for uh, drawing attention to my little dance on the video. Uh, it's just something I've learnt on the performing arts degree that I'm currently studying with the Open University. Um, what are you laughing for? I don't mind that video, actually, because it's quite dark. And you can only just work out that it's me. Where I, where I get upset is when, um, is when there's a picture comes up and it's been taken from somewhere at the back there and all you can see is the backs of people's heads. And I look at the picture and I look at it and I see this grey-haired old bloke standing there. And I think, who's that? And then I realise it's me. It's quite scary, really. Anyway, at St John's this morning, um, standing there at St John's and... I mean, as Chip's, op- Chip's often alluded to, you know, there's, there's a few of us at this church who were here right from the beginning. So I was standing at St. John's, and, and that building's got special memories for me, because years ago, when Chip and Sarah first came down and started what is now Harvest City Church, what is now this, there were a small group of us, and it was just a handful of people, really, a handful of people who were spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Dry bones. Nothing on them. No life. Ready to be scattered to the four corners of the wind. And God took that small group of people and, I think, performed something of a miracle, really. And restored something that had died. And resurrected something. Into a small group of people who grew to a a bigger group of people. And eventually bought that building at St. John's. And I can remember um, when we bought it and everything was done in it and we were ready to move in and we had no chairs. And those chairs were bought by the members of the congregation. And I remember getting the key to the building one day in the school summer holidays and sitting there on my own waiting for the lorry to turn up and for all those chairs to be delivered. You know? And then a small group of people moved into that building group of people that grew until that building was filled very much like it was this morning and then it became overfull and we had to have a camera feed upstairs so a group of people went upstairs during the worship and then when the children came up for junior church those people came downstairs and filled the seats that the children had left and then that became too much and we went to double services And then both of those services in that building became full. And we were desperately looking for somewhere else to come, and we came here. And then it began to become too full here, and we had to go back to double services again. And now we're at the point where, if you're here on a Sunday morning when we're all together, and everybody turns up, we are desperately, desperately, desperately short of seats. You see, it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. So I was part of a small group of people who had, there was no hope in that situation. It was spiritually dead. It was finished. But God has the power to do anything. Absolutely anything. I want you to turn with me, please, to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37, and we're going to read from 
from verse 1 and uh, through to verse 14, and I'm sure that it's a scripture that you know well. It says, The dry bones live. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. And it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I shall put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them. And the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, And brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you. And you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I the Lord have spoken it. And performed it. Says the Lord. So Ezekiel's vision. Of the valley of the dry bones. Came to him. After God had directed him to prophesy. The rebirth of Israel in chapter 36. God announced through the prophet. That Israel will be restored to her land. In blessing. And then in verse verse 24 it says, Under the leadership of David my servant, who shall be king over them. And that's clearly a reference to the future under Jesus Christ, who's a descendant of David. And if we read in Isaiah 7.14 it says, Then Isaiah said, Listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, it says, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. His rule, he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. And then in Luke 1, 31 to 33, it says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and, he, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him 
the throne of his ancestor David. So when you read Ezekiel 37, you see that the promise seemed impossible in light of Israel's condition. She was dead as a nation, deprived of her land, her king, her temple. She'd been divided, she'd been dispersed, and for so long that unification and restoration seemed impossible. So God gave Ezekiel the vision of the dry bones as a sign. He transports Ezekiel in a vision to a valley full of dry bones and directs him to speak to the bones. Ezekiel to tell the bones that God would make breath enter the bones and they would come to life, just as in the creation of man when he breathed life into Adam. Genesis 2.7 says this, Then the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils and the man became a living person. And Ezekiel obeys. The bones come together, the flesh develops, the skin covers the flesh, the breath enters the bodies, and they stood up in a vast army, in a vision that symbolised the whole house of Israel that was then in captivity. And like unburied skeletons, the people were in a state of living death, pining away with no end to their judgement in sight. They thought that their hope was gone, and they were cut off forever. And the surviving Israelites felt that their national hope had been dashed, the nation had died in the flames of the Babylonian attack, and there was no hope of restoration. But my message today is that it is not over until. It is not over until God says it's over. And if you think back to what I was talking about at the beginning, that small group of people, it was dead. There was no hope, but it is not over until God says it's over. You know, and the reviving of the dry bones signifies God's plan for Israel's future restoration. But most importantly, it showed that Israel's new life depended on God's power, not the circumstances of the people. It matters not what your circumstances are. What matters is God's power. And putting breath by God's spirit into the bones showed that God would not only restore them physically, but also spiritually. And ultimately, that prophecy will be fulfilled when Christ returns. So you and I, we've got a part to play. We need to realise that it's all about God's power, and it's all about God's spirit. You know, dry bones and they're dead. And there's no doubt that there are some things in our lives they need to be dead. You know, There are some things in our lives that need to be dead. And there are some things in our lives we want resurrecting and restoring. Now, one of the things that, that I, I want dead in my life is that you've got to remember that I am a child of the 1970s. Okay? You see, most of you weren't even around when the 1970s were there. You don't know how horrendous it was. The decade that style forgot. Okay? Paul, I recognise that laugh. (laughs) So, growing up, I had shirts with collars that came down to about here. Okay? With very strange patterns on them. I had flares. Okay? 
they were just like big, man. Yeah? Bags. Fla- bags were even worse than flares. Because at least with flares, well, flares were tight to about here, and then they went like that. Bags were just, well, literally like that. You know, they were just bags. And I, I remember at school that, you know, the, the fashion at one stage was to have bags, and the bags, because you didn't call them trousers, you called them bags, okay? The bags had big waistbands like this, okay? Big waistbands. It gets worse. Big trouser legs like this. And then what you did on this big waistband, when you did it up, you had as many buttons as you could to do up. And more buttons down here. So you had as many buttons as you could get on your trousers as possible. And then on your big pockets, you'd see how many buttons you could fit down your pockets. And if anybody came to school with a new pair of trousers, the first thing everybody did was count the number of buttons on your trousers. Okay? Because if you had the most buttons, you were the coolest dude in school. Okay? These things, these things need to remain dead. Okay? I know fashion goes in cycles, but that is a cycle that needs to remain dead. The fact of the matter is, God is so good. You know? And we can all tell examples of how good he is. He's not only good, he's faithful, he's merciful, he's just, he's loving, he's kind, he's a provider, he's a way maker, he's a deliverer, he's a healer, he's a help in our time of need. His name is a strong tower and we can run to it and be safe. And the Bible says in Romans 8.31 that if God be for us, who can be against us? No matter what you're going through, know that God is still on your side. God still has a plan for you. Even when times get hard, even when things look like they will never get better, even when the walls seem to be closing in, I want you to know it's not over until God says it's over. Don't give up. Keep walking. Even if it appears that all hope is gone, even if it appears that everyone else is finishing the race and you're not, believe me, it's not over yet. Only God has the final say in your life. Your boss does not have the final say in your life. Your doctor does not have the final say in your life. The government does not have the final say in your life. God has the final say. So in my family, there are some health issues. And we've been to the doctor, and we've been to the consultant, and they'll say, yeah, you've got that. What can I do, doctor? Nothing. The consultant, yeah, it's that. What can we do? Nothing. There's no cure for this. You can't change that. You've got to live with it. Put up with it. I tell you, the doctor doesn't have the final answer. God has the final answer. It is not over until God says it is over. In Ezekiel 37, God shows that no matter what the situation looks like, it's never over. Until he says it's over. You know, it's a situation where there's no future. There's no hope. This is a dark valley full of bones. Nothing lives. It's like some apocalyptic scene from a film. And a question is asked, which could be asked of you today or about people you care about. Can these dry bones live? Can you live again? Can you get out of the valley of dry bones that you are in. Because when the Bible tells us something, 
It's not just writing a history document. It's asking us questions. It's asking us to to understand how we need to live our lives. You see, Ezekiel sees, but he cannot clearly see a future for the bones. It's dead. There's no hope. There seems to be no human solutions. This is a hopeless situation. All hope is lost. It looks like no one could ever turn around what has happened here. So Ezekiel says, Lord, you know. In other words, he's saying, God, I ain't got a clue. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. I don't know how this can ever be restored. I don't know how that shattered pot can ever be made whole again. But Lord, you know. Because I don't know. Because the reality is, it ain't over until God says it's over. So what can we say? God, I've been living this way for a long time. God, I've been walking in this bad report for a long time. God, they betrayed me years ago and I don't know how to get out of this valley. But you know, Lord, you know if it's going to work out. God, you know if you're going to heal me. God, you know if you're going to deliver me. God, you know if I'm going to make it or not. God, I'm depending on you. You see, it was no accident that God sent him to a place that seemed like all hope was lost. It was no accident that there was no life left in the situation. God wanted to show him that even in the deepest, darkest valley, when all hope seems lost, even when the flesh was gone off the body, that it's not over until God says it's over. Look at Lazarus. Jesus gets the report that Lazarus is ill. He doesn't rush. Lazarus dies. He's in, the, he's in the tomb. The people are wailing. The people are upset. The people are sad. They're mourning. And Jesus gets there says, roll away the stone. Lazarus, come out. He brings him back to life because it ain't over until God says it's over. You look at Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Put in that furnace. It's cranked up to a high temperature. Everybody expects them to die. I'm sure they expected them to, themselves to die until they see another, fig, another figure in there. And they survive because it isn't over until God says it's over. Look at Job. Man, if ever there was a man who should have believed it was over, it was Job. His wife tells him, it's over. But it wasn't over. God would restore. God would resurrect. Because it's not over until God says it's over. A marriage can come back together. A family can come back together. A church can come back together. A business can come back together. A dream can come back together. Hope can come back together. And even if you're dying inside, you pray and you trust. And you pray and you trust. And you pray and you trust. Because you know, sometimes when it's difficult and sometimes when it's hard and sometimes when it seems there is no way out, we can feel like God is not there. And when we feel like that, it's a lie from the enemy. It really is. And when we feel like that, we need to pray and we need to trust. We need to keep fighting. We need to keep praying, keep pressing, keep moving, keep reading, keep believing, keep trusting. Because Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. 
There is nothing too hard for God. He has limitless, he's limitless in power and ability. There is nothing he cannot do and no situation that he cannot turn around. Things that look impossible to us are nothing to him. There is no sickness too great and no problem too overwhelming that my God cannot overcome. He is the almighty God. There is nothing impossible when you have God on your side. You look at the Bible, you look at the healings. Jesus heals the lepers, he heals the, the paralytic man who's, who's let down from the roof. He heals Peter's mother, he heals the centurion's servant. Because it's never over until God says it's over. You look at the woman with the issue of blood, Mark twenty-five twenty-six says this. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. But when she touched Jesus, it changed. You look at Jairus' daughter at the point of death. In fact, she died before Jesus arrived. He had to raise her from the dead. So what I'm telling you is, you need to keep holding on. Just because it may look like the end, just when it looks as dark as it can get, it's not over until God says it's over. And no matter what these people were going through, when they came into contact with Jesus... They were set free. God turned it around for them. And no matter what your situation, God can turn it around for you. So when a small group of people were sat in a room a few years ago, thinking, that's it, this church is finished, we're gone. Different places, I don't know, would they ever step foot inside a church again? God turned it around. God turned. Nothing to do with me, or Ian, or any of the other people that were there. God turned it around something happened and there is there is nothing that is beyond God being able to help and we're not to give up hope we're not to think that there's nothing that can be done God is the God who can change anything and turn any situation around even when the doctors have given up all hope and there's nothing that they can do Jesus is the great physician and he can do it and he can do what's needed he can do what's necessary When we put our faith in him, he can turn it around. So, shall I sit down at that point? Because that says it all, doesn't it? But I don't think it's really as simple as that. Because the reality is, I don't think there's anything I've said this morning that you would disagree with. There's nothing there that you would not be willing to tell other people about your God. Nothing that you would not claim to other people that you know to be true and that they ought to seek the face of God, sit tight, put their trust in him. Somebody comes, talks to you about their situation and you're saying to, him, you're saying to them, just make sure you're in church. Yeah? Be there, Sunday, Tuesday, be in church, be at the prayer meetings, read your Bible, pray, press into God, seek the Holy Spirit. You'd all be saying that to the people you care about. But the reality is, we can all believe for other people. We can trust in God for other people. We can urge faithfulness and endurance for other people. We can advise other people on the way forward with their problems. Can we do it for ourselves? Can we? When you finish talking to your friend about their tough situation and you've told them what they should be doing in God and in church, can you do it for yourself? That's the question. You know, I spent my whole life as a teacher. And so, you know, um, you get a little bit of stick as a teacher because everybody tells you it's easy. You get six weeks off in the summer. Yeah. I just smile. 
But what I also get is the, the classic saying that people say, well, if you can do something, then you do it. If you can't do it, you teach it. Yeah? <laughs> Oh, so you can say, that's why you're a teacher, because you couldn't do it. And then they follow it up with, and if you can't teach, you teach PE. <laughs> I've taught a lot of PE, okay? <laughs> Lots of it. You know, in our Christian walk, we can be a little bit like that. We can become teachers who really don't do it for ourselves. We can tell everybody else how it is. I can stand up here and preach and tell you what you should be doing. Do I do it for myself? Well, that's a very good question. So I'm not calling us hypocrites at all. But we can know it. We can tell others about it. But when it comes to ourselves, we can fail to apply what we know. You see, Ezekiel's clear that if you want to see a change in your life, then it'll only come through the power of God. If we want to see things happen in this church then it's only going to come through the power of God. And each and every one of us would agree with this and profess to believe it. However, deep down, we harbour some doubts. We really do. Doubts that cause us to fall back into the same choices we've always made. Fall back into the same habits we've always had. We want a different outcome. We want things to change. But we keep doing the same thing. The problem comes... And we know what the Bible tells us that we should do. We know what's being preached. And we can tell other people about it. But actually, for the last however many years of it we've been alive, this is what we've done when there's a problem. And so we just drop into that habit. And we just do this again. And we do this again. And we say, but Lord, when will this ever change? When? Will these bones get some flesh and some breath in them? When will I get out of this valley? When will I get out of this dark place? And the Bible's saying to you, when you start doing the things I need you to do, instead of the stupid old habits that you've always done. Because we can be like that. We need to get out of our old ways of thinking. See, we like to be comfortable, don't we? I like to be comfortable. And friends, there are choices to be made. And these choices need to be the choices that chime true with the word of God. Then we need to stick with them. There's no point believing that God will come through for you. And then by your choices, do the polar opposite of what he wants us to do. You see, the reality is that we stick to the tried and trusted by our very nature. Even if the tried and trusted doesn't seem to work. And we've all been there. We've all tried to deal with the situation in this way. And it hasn't worked. And then a certain amount of time later, it comes back again. And instead of thinking, well, I did that last time, it didn't work. Perhaps I need to do something different. Habit, comfort, not thinking, means that we just do the same thing again. And it doesn't work again. And we wonder why. Well, we've got to do something different. The fact is, we need to really, really trust God. Not the methods we've trusted for years and years and years that have consistently failed us. You know, we have periods of trusting God. We trust God for a little while and things are going well. And then we just fall back into our own ways. We have a period of trusting God. And then like a dog, we return to our own vomit and go back to our old ways. However, we need to trust God. The fact of the matter is we can't trust someone we don't know. 
And that's the secret of learning to trust God. When someone says, trust me, we're left with two choices, aren't we? We can either say, yes, I trust you. Or we can say, really? Why why should I trust you? In God's case, trusting him naturally follows when we understand why we should. The main reason we should trust God is that that he's worthy of our trust. Unlike men, he never lies and he never fails to fulfil his promises. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man. It's quite clear about this. God is not a man, so he doesn't lie. He's not human, so he doesn't change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Which is sort of suggesting that as human beings, we do lie, we do change our mind, and we don't carry things through. So when we're relying on other people first, before God, we're in a dangerous place. Psalm 89, 34 says, No, I will not break my covenant. I will not take back a single word I said. You know, trust is a, is a strange thing, isn't it? You know, there's people I trust in my life. I trust my parents. I trust them implicitly that they will try their very, very best not to upset us, let us down, whatever. I'll talk to them about anything. But they will get it wrong. They will get it wrong. They will offer advice that is not the right advice because they are only human beings. You know, when um, I go back a few years, when Patrick was nine or ten, so what is he about here now? I don't know how. Um, and when he was ten, he was about here. No. <laughs> He was still pretty tall at 10. He was probably about here. He became very, very poorly. And he was admitted to hospital. And he was in hospital for a few days. And so we were in and out visiting him. And I got there one day. And uh, as I walked into the children's ward, one of the children's nurses, a male nurse, was with him. And he'd been spending some time with Patrick, just talking to him. And as I walked up to the, up to the bed, he looked up and he went, Ah! Super dad! I'm like... So I just smiled and ignored this. And as we were talking about things, he just kept referring to me as super dad. Super dad. Super dad. All right. It's kind of a bit weird, this is, you know. Who's this guy? So he, and he went off, and I thought, I'm not asking Patrick about that. And so I went home, and I said to Helen, I said, it's really, really weird. I said, I went there, the male nurse was there, and I walked in, he said, ah, super dad. And Helen said, ah, oh, no. And she'd been there when the nurse was there previously and he was chatting to Patrick about the things he enjoys doing and the things he likes to do and where he likes to go and you know, saying, you know, I like this and I like that. And everything he said to Patrick was, oh, my dad can do that. <laughs> my dad does that. My dad's good at that. My dad's better than anybody at that. My dad's this. My My dad, my dad, my dad, my dad. You know, and at nine, nine years old, Patrick had this idea that he could trust his dad, his dad could do anything. Yeah? He's 22 now. He's learned otherwise. <laughs> yeah? Many times. You know, the fact of the matter is, we do trust our parents, but they are just human. And the only person we can trust who will absolutely not let us down is God. And when it's tough, that's the time we need to remember that. Because unlike men, 
He's got the power to bring to pass what he plans and purposes to do. And Isaiah 14.24 tells us, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. And furthermore, his plans are perfect and righteous. Romans 8.28 tells us, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. You know, if we ever endeavour to know God through his word, we'll see that he's worthy of our trust. And our trust in him will grow daily. To know him is to trust him. We can learn to trust God as we see how he's proven himself to be trustworthy in our lives and in the lives of others. 1 Kings 8.56 we read, Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. And you can read lots of promises in the Bible that were fulfilled. You can read lots of historical documents where God has come through for his people. Ephesians 2.8-10 says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so that he can do the good things he planned for us so long ago. He comforts us with the peace that passes all understanding as we run the race he's planned out for us. Philippians 4, 6-7, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need, thank him for all he's done, then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. So, don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Okay? Who's managed that one then? Come on. There must be a perfect person out there somewhere. No? What do we actually do? We worry about everything and pray about some things. Yeah? We worry about everything for a while and think, oh no, I should be praying about this. Yeah? We've got to change our way of thinking. We've got to change our habits. We've got to change what our instantaneous reaction is. Because we are, it's almost like our upbringing has hardwired us that when something goes wrong, we worry about it. We use our own whatever we've got to try and sort it. And it's just instantaneous. And then when we stop worrying about it for five minutes, we remember God. And it needs to be the other way around. Don't worry about anything, says God. Instead, pray about everything. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And the more we experience his grace, his faithfulness, his goodness, then the more we will trust him. Psalm 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And his faithfulness continues to each generation. So it doesn't matter that this was written quite some time ago. Because his faithfulness continues to each generation. His faithfulness then is his faithfulness now. It's his faithfulness in the future. Isaiah 25 verse 1. O Lord, I will honour and praise your name for you are my God. You do such wonderful things. You planned them long ago. And now you have accomplished them. You see, a third reason to trust God is that we really don't have a sensible alternative. If you think about it, There's there's a choice here. Should we 
trust in ourselves and others who are sinful, unpredictable, have limited wisdom, make lots of bad choices, and our decisions are swayed by our emotions, there's choice one, or do we trust in an all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, gracious, merciful, loving God who's got good intentions for us? Okay, it should be obvious, but sometimes we still make the wrong choice. We fail to trust God, I believe, because we don't know him well enough. We cannot hope to trust in someone who is essentially a stranger to us. But that is easily remedied. You know, God's not made himself difficult to find or to know. All we need to know about God, he has graciously made himself available to us in the Bible. His holy word to his people, to know God is to trust him. To know God is to trust him. To know God is to trust that he's going to do exactly what he says. That he's not going to make a mistake. You know, we've all trusted people in our lives that have let us down. I mean, I go back to when I was, when I was a child. My, my family come from Plymouth. So every year, we would go down to the West Country. We'd go to the same place that we'd go on holiday and then go out and, and visit family. And uh, so I got to know people that, where we stayed. I got to know people over years. And uh, I got to know a, a, a guy called Richard. And Richard, I don't think, because he spent his entire life at the seaside, I'm not sure that he was actually human. Okay? I think he was a fish, really. Okay? <laughs> the things he would do on rocks and in water were quite terrifying. Um, and still live. He was also, at 10 years old, quite proficient with a snorkel and a mask and flippers and a spear gun. So he would go snorkeling with a spear gun, shooting fish. Okay? And he was trusted with his own spear gun, with nobody around, no adults, just with his spear gun. It's a deadly weapon, okay? Um, and if you know about a spear gun, you hold it like that, and when you pull the trigger, the spear comes out at an incredible volu- um, volume, speed, <laughs> velocity, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> I am a scientist, really. Um, and it comes out at this incredible velocity, and there's a rope to a string attached to it, so that when it shoots out... If it hits the fish or misses the fish, you can just pull it back in underwater and stick it back in again and shoot it again. So we were on the beach one day, loads of us, all about 9, 10, 11 years old, no adults. Different world. And he's got a spear gun. And he's walking around like this with it. <laughs> Who shall I shoot then? And we're all going, Richard, put it, put it down. It's just stupid. It's ridiculous, Richard. And I was leaning against a rock like this. So he looks at me and says, right, I'm going to shoot you. I said, don't be stupid. He says, it's all right, it's got a string on it. He said, I know how long the string is. He said, you're far enough away. And he went like this, and he said, I'm going to shoot you. And I'm going, don't pull that trigger. And all the other lads go, oh, Richard, that's ridiculous. Don't be stupid. Don't pull the trigger. That's dangerous. Bang. And this harpoon, I'll call it now, because in my eyes, when it was coming towards me, it wasn't a spear, it was a harpoon. And it was coming straight for here. Okay? So this is a thing that guts fish. Okay? So if it hits me, it's going through. And I'm standing there, and it's coming to the end of its rope. And as it hits the end of its rope, he was right, the rope was too short for it to hit me. But as it hits the end of the rope, the knot comes undone. And there's a jolt, and this, it continues. And it dropped about there. Okay? I've never told anybody this story. Okay, 
So you're not. If you ever meet my parents, don't tell them because they kill him. <laughs> I trusted him completely until that moment. And I was scared. You should have seen the look on his face. You know? Because he's a human. And he makes mistakes. He did a stupid thing. But that's just the reality. We can't really trust other people. Ultimately, we've got to trust God. So, seven steps to trusting God. Number one, don't depend on you. Yeah? Don't depend on you. What we actually do is we trust in our own wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. See, most of us have faced disappointments which have taught us that we can only depend upon ourselves. But living the life God has called us to means we have to unlearn that lesson. When I started to learn to drive, I'd been taught initially by my dad. And the first thing the driving instructor did with me was he took me out, we drove around, he said, now I'm going to unteach you all the things your dad's taught you. Because he taught me to do things a way that wasn't going to get me past my test. And I had to unlearn those lessons before I could do it the right way. And we need to unlearn what we do, which is trusting in ourselves. We know in our minds that he possesses all wisdom. Romans 11.33 says, On the depth of the riches of his wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. You know, sometimes trusting him completely like that can be tough. So each day... We must consciously lay aside our own plans and expectations and surrender his plans, surrender to his plans. Each day, every morning, you get up, stop thinking about yourself, faith in God. And the next day, put it down, faith in God. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And I just don't believe that it matters how long you do it for, you're going to have to do it each day. Because there's something inside us that wants to trust in ourselves and do it our own way. But we can't do it. Number two, cry out to God. Cry out to God. What do we actually do? We whinge and moan about our fate. It's a very different thing. Surrendering to God begins with our own lips and our own thoughts. We need to cry out to him to show that dependence. Proverbs 3, 6, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You know, when we pray... We admit that his ways are higher than ours. We show that we're leaving our troubles and our burdens and our dreams in his hands. Psalm 55, 17 says, Evening, morning and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. You know, when we give our lives to him, we handed the keys of our life to him because we know he's able to lead us. And we need to remember that we've given the keys of our lives to him. And stop trying to snatch them back. Number three, run from evil. That's what the Bible tells us to do. What we tend to do is keep doing those worldly habits that are no good for us. You know, so much in this world can clutter up our relationship with God. Instead, life works best when we remember the true source of our blessings, God. And we focus on the things that please him. Proverbs 3, 7 says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. You know, sometimes the only way to live the life God wants us to live is by separating ourselves from the bad influences that keep 
dragging us down. And that's not an easy thing to do. And you've got to start to recognise, ask the Lord to, to show you what those bad influences are that you can move away from. And you know, if one of those bad influences is somebody you've known your whole life or perhaps a member of your family, then it's very, very diff- difficult to distance yourself from that. But you have to find a way of doing it so you can focus on what the Lord wants you to focus on. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now you see here it says, Flee the evil desires of youth. It doesn't say flee from everything that your past had in it. Because there's a lot of stuff that your past had in it. There was nothing wrong with it. It was absolutely fine. It's part of you. It's part of your history. It's part of what made you who you are. But it says flee from the evil desires of your youth. That is the key to it. Is that easy? No, it isn't. Fleeing from the evil desires that pull at us means spending a lot of time crying out to God and leaning on him. Because Proverbs 3.8 says, this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. When we pursue him, we find life. We find abundant life. Running from evil and pursuing God doesn't come naturally to most of us. It really doesn't. Like I said before, we can do it for a time and then we forget. We can do it for a time and then we stop. We can do it for a time and then we get distracted. But we just need to keep doing it. Because that's what it's all about. Number four, put God first in your life. What do we do? We put our own needs first, our own wants. It's easiest to put yourself first. That's the easy thing to do. That's the safe thing to do. That's the comfortable thing to do. That's the habitual thing to do. And when something good happens, what do we do? We congratulate ourselves with a reward. Yeah? Because that helps. And then when something bad happens, we console ourselves with a reward. Or we find someone else to blame. And when it comes to money, the struggle is even harder. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs 3.9, Honour the Lord with your wealth. With the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing. And your vats will brim over with new wine. If we can trust God with the first of our wealth, we're truly showing how much we depend on him. Handing over the first part of our salary takes a huge amount of faith. It's hard. Nobody ever said it was easy. Number five, check yourself by God's word. Check everything you do by God's word. But I tell you what, we think that the Bible says, check yourself out with one of your mates. Yeah? And we've got a problem And we go and find one of our mates and say, hey, this is a problem, what should I do? And we often don't think about which of our mates that is that we're talking to. Now, if that's somebody that's in church and it's somebody who you really know is on track with God, then then talking to them, getting advice, getting counsel, I haven't got a problem with it. But you've got to be careful who you ask. But the key is, check it out with God's word because the problem is we're not very good at evaluating ourselves you know we're not very good at working out what we're good at what we're bad at where we're at where we're not on our own we're just not good at it we go to great lengths to excuse our behavior we go to great lengths 
to excuse our actions. Oh yeah, it was just a one-off, it doesn't matter, it's just a habit, it's okay, I'll get rid of that. We get, go to great lengths to excuse our sins. It's only a little thing, it don't really matter. It's fine, don't worry about that. Because we're just not very good at evaluating ourselves. But Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and is beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? When something's happened and you do something and afterwards you sit down and you think, why, oh why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I make that decision? Why on earth have I found myself here? Well, it's your heart. And you're never going to understand it because it's incurable. The only answer is in God's word. And when you find yourself in a dark place and you find yourself in a valley and you find yourself where the bones are dry and there's no flesh on it and there's no breath in it, well, it might just well be because you need to turn around and look to God and seek his face and do what he wants you to do instead of thinking, hmm, this ain't fair. Life's not fair, is it? It's not going to solve anything. We need to put God first and check ourselves by his word. If we're ever really going to trust God, we have to know exactly where we stand. We have to find an objective measure that tells us the truth. And the objective measure is right here. It's in God's word. Proverbs 3.11 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke. Because sometimes it takes something bad happening or seeing ourselves in a bad light before we finally admit that we need to change. And the more we're in the Bible, the more likely that is to happen. Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, you've got to hide God's word in your heart. Now, I'm not talking about writing out a few scripture verses and memorising them and being able to quote parrot fashion the odd scripture when somebody says, oh, are are you in trouble? Yes, but God says this in such and such and such and such. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I wish I could remember scripture better. I just find it really, really hard. But he's talking about hiding it in your heart. And the way you hide it in your heart is you spend time with it. And you read it and you seek his face and you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you. And you're in church and you're actually listening to what's being said on a Sunday morning and on a Tuesday night. Yeah? Because that's how you hide it in your heart. And when it's hidden in your heart, when you need it, you can bring it out. If it's just a passing thing that you read occasionally and now and again you might open a Bible... It's not hidden in your heart. It's somewhere sort of like in your frontal lobe here and it just disappears really, really quickly. When I'm teaching children at school, I use a a sort of an illustration of how they remember things because you can teach them things one day, the next day they can't remember it. You teach it them again and then two days later they can't remember it. You teach them how to add up with blue cubes, you give them red cubes and they can't do it, you know? When I say to them, particularly when they're getting to GCSE level, if you want to remember this, if you want to retain it, You've got to read it, you've got to learn it, you've got to do it again and again and again and again. And I, I sort of say to them, you know, when the first time you hear it and the first time you understand it, it sort of buries itself about here, yeah? And the next time it moves back a little bit. And the next time it moves back a little bit. 
And then it goes a little bit further back and a little bit further back and a little bit further back till it's really stuck in the back of your brain. And when it's stuck in the back of your brain and you sit in an exam and you read something, you go, ah! And you sort of pull it out and put it on the page. But if you only do it once, it's here. And as you walk out the door, it goes... And it's gone. And it's a bit a bit like hiding God's word in your heart. It's no good reading it once. It's no good reading it twice. It's no good reading it three times. You've got to read it again and again and again and again and again. We have to have scripture firmly in our hearts. And God will use that to deal with us and help us to get out of those dark situations. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit. Number six. Listening to the Holy Spirit requires us to focus on him. What do we do? We make so much noise about things we can't hear anything. You know, when Jesus promised to send his Holy Spirit to the church, it was an important thing. John 14, 26 says this, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. And as we go through our day... That same Holy Spirit guides us too. That means we don't have to go it alone and hope that we're getting it right. 2 Timothy 1.14 says, Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us. To us. That mi- Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And the last point really is that we are to rest in God's love. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how dark it is, no matter how deep the valley is, no matter how much you think something is dead, that the flesh and, and skin has been ripped off it, the breath of life has gone from it, no matter how much, you have to try and rest in God's love. What we actually do is we sit on our own or with our family and we worry at it. God says, rest in my love. And when we face a difficult world each day, we can sometimes wonder if God even cares. Why do bad things happen? Where is God when I need him? And Solomon reminds us that God never takes a break and he never asks us or leaves us to fend for ourselves. Proverbs 3.12 says this, Because the Lord disciplines those he loves, As the father, the son, he delights in. And so when you're in a bad place, when something difficult is going on, and it's been going on for a long time, or it's a long time in the past and nothing's changed, you can be like that. You can think, where is God in this? Where is he? Where where is God in this? Where? But the reality is, the Bible is clear that the Lord says, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And just as he could resurrect those dry bones and put flesh on them and put skin on them and breathe life into them, he can resurrect things in your life. The things that are dead, the things that you know shouldn't be dead, the things that need flesh putting on them, the things that need skin putting on them, the difficult situations that appear to be no more, there is no hope. God says, I can breathe life into those things. I can breathe into your nostrils today, says your God. And bring those things back to life. You just need to believe. You just need to believe that it's about my power. And my strength. And my spirit says your God. 
Not you. Not your strength. Not your power. Yes, there are things you need to do. But it's about the Lord. And when all hope is gone, and when despair fills your heart, there is only one answer. Borrowing money from the bank will not sort it out. The doctors will not necessarily sort it out. Your boss will not sort it out. Applying for a different job will not sort it out. If it's something that's deep and dark and dead and it needs to change, it comes from the power of God and nowhere else can deal with it. That is it. End of story. And what I'm saying to you today is that we're very good at telling other people that. We need to start to believe it for ourselves and put it into action. You know, you need, when you're caring for somebody and you really care for them and you're looking after them, you need to care about yourself as much as that. You know, when my children were growing up and I was saying to them, no, you go to bed at this time, you get up at this time, you do your homework, you eat properly, you drink properly, you sleep properly, you're not on that screen for 24 hours a day, you're going out in the garden to play. It's advice, 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 because I want the best for my children. And then I sit there, (laughs) eating a pizza and ice cream, drinking Coke, Watching the telly at two o'clock in the morning and not sleeping enough. Because we're very good at advising and helping other people. And absolutely terrible at doing it for ourselves. And there's only one person that's going to do it for you. And that's you. So even in the midst of turmoil, God sticks with us. And he uses those challenges to shape us. And when we understand that, Our perspective completely flips. And no longer do we see our setbacks as failures. We see them as moments when God can work on us. And that's exactly why we can trust in the Lord with all our hearts. He cares for us each and every day. He gives us what we need to thrive. He pours blessing after blessing upon us. Trusting God takes a wholehearted commitment but we are never alone. Matthew 28.20 says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Because as I started with, a small group of people, spiritually dead, in a valley, in a very dark place. But God has turned it around. And we have what we have now at Harvest City Church. Because it is never over until God says it is over. Should we stand? Praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Father God, we come before you this morning. For we know, Lord, that you are our salvation. You are our help in time of need. You are the one that will make the way for us, Father. You are the one that we can trust in. Lord, you are the one whose word stands 
the same as it was yesterday, today, and forever, Father. And that we need to put our trust in you. Father God, we thank you that your word is yes, your promises are yes and amen. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to die for us and that we have your word to read, Father. We thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit as our counsellor. We thank you for that, Father, and we want to put our trust in you this morning, Father, in the precious, precious name of Jesus. But you know, the fact of the matter is we all, we all have these difficulties in our lives. We all have things that are going on that we're, we're struggling to deal with and we're struggling to cope with and we're struggling to understand why it's happening in our lives. We don't get it. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. And it's at those times that God says, I can bring this back to life. I can restore this. I can help you. You just need to trust in me because it isn't over until I say it's over. And you know, this morning, if, if you've got a difficult situation, you're, you're struggling with something, it might be something that only started yesterday. It could be something you've been struggling with for days, weeks, months, years. It doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that God is in control. And we need to seek his face. We need to pray about it. We need to be prayed for. So I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're in a situation and you need the Holy Spirit, you need the power of God in your lives, I'm going to ask you to come down so that our prayer team can pray for you. And we're not going to ask you what that situation is. We're just going to pray that God's power and God's Spirit will be with you, will support you, and will have an impact upon your life as you walk through that valley. Because God can bring it back to life. So if you need prayer this morning, I just ask you to come down. And we will pray for you this morning that God's Holy Spirit will just touch your lives.